Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just quickly wanted to say that wherever you are in the world, I hope that you are safe and healthy. Every single day seems to blend into the next right now while we are all stuck in isolation, but just know that you are doing your part to help beat this common enemy. The world has changed so much in such a short period of time, and it seems like the hospitality industry has been hit in an unprecedented way. In most places that aren't completely locked down, restaurants are trying to hang on by offering takeout, selling gift cards for the future when we can all get together again, and a lot of listeners to this show have restaurants that are doing just that. So if it is at all possible, please reach out and support them any way you can. I was sitting around for the last few weeks just like you, filling my time with podcasts and cooking and reading and watching Tiger King. I am very lucky and I realize that. I live in the country. I don't have neighbors. I am able to go outside. I am able to start growing a garden. Tim and I were standing on the front porch the other day and I said it felt so weird that even though the world beyond the horizon that I can see and am used to has completely changed, my world hasn't. It looks exactly the same. I was also spending my time reading the news and watching hospitality workers in my town suffer and having to decide between paying rent and bills or buying groceries, so Tim and I decided to do something about it. This week, I started the Bayfield Eats for Hospitality Relief, and every week, uh, I am cooking a different menu available for safe and contactless pickup, and with every single cent I make going to help hospitality workers in my town buy food and supplies to help them get through this strange and difficult time. I posted the first menu last Monday, and by Tuesday afternoon, we were sold out. So this Friday, I will be back in the kitchen making food for people so that we can help other people. The amount of support that we got from our small community is amazing. My town is known for restaurants, and we want to get everything back to normal, and we want to make sure that we're back up and running as soon as possible, and whenever that is. If you want to follow us along on this journey, you can follow us on Instagram at Bayfield Eats. If you want to write into this show for any reason, you can email me at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Restaurants have changed. The idea of dining has changed. Not too long ago, we were eating out, we were celebrating, we were living, and now it's been paused. Takeout is the only way that we can continue to enjoy restaurant food, and although the ways in which we were forced to start only ordering meals was thrown at us all quickly, it isn't a new concept. The idea of food, takeout, and delivery is old. It's very old. Although it may seem like a modern invention with drive through windows and pizza places, it goes back almost the entire way to the beginning of civilization. For as long as human beings have been able to cook food, it seems that we have also been cooking it for others for money. People have enjoyed eating without the hassle of cooking forever. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the history of takeout and delivery. Hang on. 
The Aztec Empire filled the jungles of Mesoamerica in 1300. Long, winding roads would stretch for miles through the dense forest that would all lead to the capital city. Now that capital was not unlike any other capital city, with thousands of people walking and riding their way on these paths all heading towards it. And every so often, not unlike getting on the highway today and heading to New York or Toronto or London or Paris, travelers would stumble upon smaller towns and villages, and most of them had food available for hungry people. The Aztecs had counters and small kitchens set up serving tamales, and selling them to the travelers. The traditional tamale being a corn-based dough or masa filled with meat, beans, and even cheese, and then wrapped in corn husks or banana leaves and steamed. Hundreds of these tamale stands would dot the highways leading to the capital city, and thousands of tamales would be bought every single day. While the Aztecs were feeding on tamales across the world in ancient Rome, Pompeii, the city that was preserved in volcanic ash for thousands of years, was filled with thermopylia or cookshops, which can also be translated to a place where something hot is sold. There were around 150 thermopylia in Pompeii, so many that the city's citizens usually didn't prepare food at home. They would gather at the long counters at the end of the day and purchase the cooked food and jugs of wine to take home with them. These cookshops were basically the ancient equivalent to fast food. They would usually consist of a small room with a counter at the front. Embedded in that counter was earthenware pots that would be filled with other foods for sale like dried fruit and nuts. Not unlike fast food, these early takeout restaurants were meant for poor people, or people that couldn't afford to have a cook living in their home making food for them. The most common meals that were being served were baked fish, cheese with bread, and for dessert honey-covered fruit. Archaeologists have spent decades digging out the preserved ruins of Pompeii. The volcanic ash so perfectly preserved the city that the tiled artwork on the walls of these restaurants looks brand new. They even found a kettle full of water, dishes for people to eat on and bring back later, and even found a jar of coins under a counter where the chef was keeping the earnings from the day the volcano erupted. If you visit Pompeii today, you can go to one of these Thermopylae and eat. You can order cheese covered in honey and sit at the counter where fast, casual food was invented. As we talked about in our restaurant's first episode, the first ever delivery of food was a pizza. King Umberto and Queen Margarita were visiting Naples in 1889 and were being treated to the usual royal feasts and banquets. One day the Queen got food poisoning from some meat that had been left out a little too long, and so the next day, after being extremely sick, didn't want to leave the palace they were staying at, and also didn't trust the kitchen anymore. So the word went out to Chef Rafael Esposito, who owned the city's best pizzeria, to make and bring a pie to the King and Queen. Not wanting to insult the royals with any old pizza, he designed one that represented the Italian flag, using the tomato sauce for the red, basil for the green, and fresh mozzarella for the white. He boxed up that pizza and brought it personally to the queen in her chambers, making the first ever delivery of food. And that pizza was named after the queen. It became known as the Margarita Pizza. Not long after the invention of delivery in Naples, 5,993 kilometers away in Mumbai, India, a man named Mahito Bash came up with the idea for a company to deliver home-cooked lunches to the city's workers. He called those workers Dabawala, and it started with about 100 men. Now, the word Dabawala means one who carries a box, and his idea was born out of necessity. With more and more migrants reaching Mumbai and no fast food culture or canteens in the city to speak of, there was literally no food to feed all of the workers at lunchtime. The concept of somehow being able to deliver food from home to workers in the city center was genius. 
And from the humble origin of one shop with a hundred delivery men to today over 5,000 shops feeding roughly 200,000 people every single day, the Dabawala system of delivery has been around for 127 years and is quite literally the envy of companies like FedEx for how well it's run. And it's still run today without the use of any technology. This is how it works. The Tiffin lunchbox is a large circular metal tin that almost looks like a metal milk pail. The lunch for the worker is made by their family at home and usually consists of four different trays. The bottom tray holds rice, while the others include a curry, vegetables, a flatbread, and some kind of dessert. The people who deliver the lunch pails to their owners are all wearing a white smock, ride bicycles, and wear the traditional white Gandhi cap. Oddly enough, most of the Dabas come from the same village of Poon, which is about two hours southeast of Mumbai. Dabawalas collect the tiffins from the people who made them at around 10 a.m. The food is often being made by a wife or a mother, and up to 30 of these pails will be balanced and taken by bicycle through busy roads to the nearest train station. Each tin is labeled using a system of colors and symbols, with each color or symbol telling where the tiffin is picked up, what station it should be sent to, and the final address of the owner. All these tins are hand-painted, but they're not painted with words. It's just random symbols that the Dabawalas know how to interpret. The tins are put onto the train and then picked up by more Dabawalas waiting at the platform for the train to arrive. Once the tins are loaded back up onto bicycles, they are taken through the streets of Mumbai and hand-delivered to the recipients every single day by noon, and they are never late. Not only is the food delivered, but the empty tins from the other lunches are then picked up and brought back by bicycle to the train station, sent back to where they came from, loaded back onto bicycles, and brought through busy streets and hazardous conditions to the house where they originated from, where they are washed and cleaned and used the next day for lunch. Now, you might be thinking that this would cost an insane amount of money to have home-cooked food delivered to you in an intricate and insanely complicated system that is run mostly by illiterate workers, but in reality, it costs about $4.50 a month, which is the same price as one cheap sandwich in Mumbai today. Each Dabawala earns about $95 a month, and it's seen as a job that you will do for the rest of your life. The workers even have a philosophy that translates to, donating food is the best charity. Mumbai's Dabawalas are so efficient and so good at delivering their tiffins that they only make one mistake in every 6 million deliveries, or one mistake a month. This food delivery system works so well that it has been studied by Harvard University, and every single major delivery company in the world, like UPS, FedEx, and Purelater, have all tried and failed to figure out how and why it works so well. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can get a digital subscription to the world's best and most important newspaper for $1 a week. $1 for the best journalism stories and writing available in the world. While you're at home during this self-isolated lifestyle we are all living, why not get your news from the most trusted source available and stop believing what you're reading on Facebook? Get the New York Times for $1 a week. Go to nytimes.com. And now, back to the show. Right through the very heart of it, New York, New York. I want to wake up in a... 
In America, during the 18th century, colonial hotels in big cities advertised that families may every day be provided with plates of any dish that may happen to be cooked that day by sending their servants. After the Civil War, there were restaurant-made lunches put in what was called cracker boxes for picnics and for travelers making their way through small towns. One restaurant in the 1920s was offering chicken sandwiches, roasted chicken, and salads of all kinds that could be picked up and taken away. Some of these lunches even being delivered to local businesses in town. Takeout and delivery options in North America pretty much stayed this way up until the middle of the 20th century, with the most common places to find takeout being in train stations, or located at the intersections of the major highways that were quickly being paved all over the country. And again, unfortunately, we come to that point in any show that we have ever done where American food history comes up, where racism and segregation comes in. White people wanted to eat black food because it tasted better than the crap they were being offered. While train travel was still the easiest and by far the busiest mode of transportation, at every lunch stop, lunch counters and carts would be open and ready to serve things like soup and sandwiches and coffee. No one really cared, though, about making the food taste good, because most people would be back on the train and miles away eating it to be able to complain about the crappy food being served and they'd never have to see them ever again. One traveler in 1868 wrote in a letter as he was visiting the South, The eating houses on the railways in the South are almost without exception abominable. It took me several days to learn the secret, but I found at last the surest way to satisfy the appetite, and also the cheapest, is to patronize the colored women who throng around the cars in the principal station with nicely cooked eggs, chicken, and sometimes hot coffee. Southern food became so popular on trains that East Coast travelers would even reroute their trips to be able to go to Gordonsville, Virginia, where there was a restaurant famous for its fried chicken. For African-American travelers, takeout was a necessity because they weren't allowed to sit and eat in the white-owned restaurants they ordered from in cities that they weren't accustomed to. They had to go eat it elsewhere. So, while the lines of white people stretched down the block for fried chicken, in front of the black-owned restaurants, when the African-Americans traveled across the South, they had to rely on takeout to eat because the world is insane and America's history is completely ridiculous. Takeout lunches became an unavoidable part of life for city workers as industrialization took over the early 20th century. As more and more people would come to the cities to work, they would need to eat quickly before the whistle sounded and you had to get back to the factory. The most popular items in New York were oysters, scallops, and basically any sea creature that could be steamed, made into a chowder, or cook over charcoal. A lot of restaurants in the city offered take-home dinners like fried scallops in a box, which would cost you about 25 cents from Chaz Bradley's Oyster Room, or oyster stew to take home in a can from the Sagamore restaurant. An interesting fact is that the company who made the paper boxes to take home the fried scallops was the Bloomer Brothers of New York. Over time, as the oyster beds were wiped out and the curbside seafood stalls in New York City disappeared, the company evolved and is now even today the printer of the iconic white and red Chinese food takeout containers that are indicative of, of the city. In Los Angeles in 1922, a Chinese food restaurant called Kinchu Cafe became the first restaurant to take orders over the phone and deliver to your door. They were advertised as the only place on the West Coast making and delivering real Chinese food, and in a game-changer of a business model, they were open until 1 a.m. Now you guys think you're lucky.
lucky you can get Swanson TV turkey dinners, but I say Swanson TV turkey dinners are a bigger break for husbands. Now, you take me. I can be early, I can be late, I can bring pals to dinner anytime I please, and get this, my wife never panics. She just takes Swanson TV turkey dinners from the freezing compartment of our refrigerator when I'm a little off schedule. Oh, and right you are, Jack. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven ready in individual heat and serve trays. With Swanson TV turkey dinners, you just heat and serve, and you serve big and hearty slices of moist, tender Swanson turkey with grand giblet gravy and special cornbread dressing and fluffy whipped sweet potatoes with golden Swanson butter mm. and garden fresh peas with more butter. Mm. Mother yeah. Murphy, lucky <laughs> me. My wife uses Swanson TV turkey dinners. And make your husband lucky, too. Get Swanson TV turkey dinners, Swanson TV fried chicken dinners, Swanson TV beef dinners from your grocer's big freezer. After the Second World War, Americans had a new hobby and it wasn't going out for dinner. The 1950s brought television and oven dinners like Swanson's into the mainstream. With the suburbs full of Don Draper-esque families all sitting in their best clothes watching their TV sets every night, restaurants almost failed in America. But instead of packing it in, the restaurants decided to start offering television night menus that they would deliver to you, and people loved them. Instead of a tinfoil tray plucked from the freezer and warmed up in the oven, you could bring the restaurant home. And by offering delivery, restaurants were able to raise their profits by 50% and survive. Now, the most popular item that these television menus offered was the one thing that would take over North America soon afterwards. Pizza. When American soldiers returned home from World War II, they had all developed a love for Italian food, especially pizza. And they would all fill the Italian restaurants that had been filling the dining scene in the States since the first wave of Italian immigrants had arrived in New York City in the early 20th century. There was so much excitement about pizza all of a sudden that even the New York Times had to write an article to explain what pizza was. They wrote that it was a pie made from yeast dough and filled with any number of different centers, each one containing tomatoes. By 1944, restaurants had developed the pizza box, letting people bring the pizza home with them. In Los Angeles, a pizza place called Casa de Moore was the first place to offer free delivery of their pizza, as long as you met the $2.50 requirement. an Italian food, everything has got to be just so perfect, especially when you're making a pizza. I'm going to show you. Looks gold? <laughs> you betcha my life. And it's delicious. That's a pizza you get at this theater. So hurry up. Get yourself some. Pizza! Pizza! Pizza, pizza, pizza. Everybody loves pizza, and we're now featuring the famous original Talona pizza. Only the finest and purest ingredients go into the original Talona pizza, made fresh to your order. And into the oven it goes. Presto, a luscious, hot, crispy pizza. We're now featuring... Hey, wait a minute. Give me another pizza. <laughs> That's better. Now, as I was saying... We now have delicious, crispy Talona pizza at the refreshment stand. What do you have? Cheese, sausage, or pepperoni? Take it away! 
If you like pizza made the real Italian way with bubbly cheese, tangy seasonings, pure ingredients, you'll say our pizza is the Mosta. Try some now at the refreshment center. By the 1960s, privately owned cars had taken over the roads, and popping up everywhere were fast food joints with takeout. Drive-ins became the place for teenagers to hang out, and the world became addicted to the idea of a drive-through window. Now, the first drive-through window, despite what you may believe, was not McDonald's. It wasn't In-N-Out, and it wasn't even a coffee place. It was Red Giant's Hamburg, which was located on Route 66 in Springfield, Missouri. Takeout has evolved so much over the years that it's weird to think that it is literally the only option available right now. I realized as I was writing this episode that I can't really finish it. The history of takeout and delivery is changing every single day because of the situation we are in. There are millions and millions of people unable to leave their homes, scared to leave their homes, surviving off of delivery. They're surviving by ordering food. Grocery stores are doing curbside pickup. Uber Eats is gouging restaurants 30% of the bill to deliver the food to homes that the restaurants need to try and weather the coronavirus storm. Takeout and delivery has gone from one of life's pleasures to a necessity, to something that millions of people need to survive. I don't think that any of us ever thought that was possible, but here we are. I don't have the answers, and I usually never do, but for right now, let me just say, I hope that you are safe, stay healthy, don't panic and order takeout. And if you're working right now feeding people, if you're the cook stuck in self-isolation that has somehow become a private chef for your family, or a parent or a child, or you are making food for others in any capacity during this time, have a great service and have a great week.